Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hello everybody, it's your demonic, anywhere key-wielding bruiser Holden McNeely. And it's me, your jock older brother wizard. (laughs) That's right, I'm the jock, I play (laughs) hockey, I'm cool, I, um... Beat a man's face in with a brick. That is issue one. <laughs> issue one, that's all you need to know. Well, yes, we are talking about the comic book series and now Netflix TV series, Lock and Key. And I'm very excited about that. This is definitely one that I wanted to do that I proposed because I loved the comic book series. I was reading it back when I used to live with Ben Kissel. We were all reading it together. I have since reordered the full series. It's, it's out in, I believe, six trades um, and... It really moves. It's really solid, and the illustration's amazing. And I was so excited to see that it got the Netflix treatment. I watched the Netflix show. We can talk about that. I have seen the entire thing now, the ten episodes. It's one of those. Um, there are things I really like about it. There are things I don't super like about it. And you should get into it because I know what you're yeah. gonna. I know what you're gonna say about it. Uh, yeah, and now that I've seen the whole thing, I'm I, I'm excited for the direction they're going in. Hopefully Netflix, it's looking like Netflix will approve a second season, but I'm not completely sure yet. Hopefully they will because I feel like they can get it there, that it's it's halfway there. But man, the comic book. The comic book is so fucking good, and I want more people to read it and know about it. The comic is so good, and it's it's very weird to me because doing uh, the research for this week and you know listening to interviews with the uh, writer Joe Hill and uh, kind of slamming this book into my brain like shotgun blasting it in giant sprints it really is just kind of a solid 2000s comic book like it hits all of the right notes it hits the kind of 80s spielberg stephen king influence of like something amiss in a small town with like a little bit of a danger edge to Mm -hmm, it mm -hmm. it hits the um wonderful device of the doors and the keys, which is just such a storytelling gift. It's a great premise for a fun story. Having magical keys, and they all do different things, and they are there are so many of them, too, and there's so many, if you've only seen the show, there are so many that are not in the first season that are really exciting and fun to watch. And um, just that that very addictive, like when when a professional writer who understands the medium of comics just gets page flow and understands, you know, uh, the economy of words and images, hits you with those big fuck you splash pages and those giant reveals. It's very powerful. Yes. And, uh, you know, looking looking into this, it's an amalgamation of all these wonderful influences and how uh, Joe Hill kind of learned to accept those influences and process them and explore uh, the... Kind of stuff that he was at one point ashamed of mm-hmm. was really fascinating. I love the. Did you mention horror? Because I love that the this particular comic book's take on horror, and we'll talk about what their approach to horror was in the sense because I felt it felt f- like very fresh to me mm-hmm. in a comic book sense of how uh, their approach to the more horror element things. I think that's the one thing that is these show is lacking to me that I want more of is it's, actually the the horror element. Well, we'll we'll get into it but like clearly Netflix wanted a new stranger things. Yes. And 
uh, one of the things that makes that made Lock and Key such a difficult property to adapt, despite its wild popularity in comic reading circles, mm-hmm. I don't think there's any serious fan of comics that doesn't have that hasn't read it or at the very least doesn't know that it's a solid book. Right. Is the weird mix of child perspective and uh, visceral horror and cosmic horror yes. all kind of smushed together? So, you know, um, the uh, the fire key in the TV series really was so that it's much more p- TV friendly to have someone burst into flames and just kind of like poof away right. than to like get jammed in the fucking eye hole with a pair of scissors. Yeah, and that there that you can do a lot more to the kids you can do a lot more with the kids around in a comic book sense that would maybe turn people off too much in a tv show sense though i would i do hope that they again go into a bit more of the uh, edgier horror horrific direction with uh, potentially with season two no they're going so i mean uh joe hill even like said that you know uh originally in the comic the the town in massachusetts where it takes place was originally called lovecraft you have Mm -hmm. to understand this was in the Mid two thousands, when making a Lovecraft reference was still like interesting and new and yeah. not eye rolling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he, uh, you know, having since learned uh, more about Lovecraft and having seen the culture evolve, uh, when it came time to the TV show, he was like, "How about we change it to Matheson, just you know, to give homage to a different dark sci fi writer, a different dark." He did. I am Legend. Yeah. Correct, and some other things. And preferably one that hasn't been dragged across the coals of history for right. some real just oopsie-doops views well, it's on it's cool, race. too, because Matheson also is known for his television work. Mm-hmm. I believe Doctor Who, was it? Or oh, he's done a lot of... We've actually covered his, some of his stuff on the show, and I feel bad for... Definitely worked on Twilight Zone. Yes, um, okay. Well, anyways, it, it, I think... Um, it was a also, racket back in those Also days. a nod towards maybe someone who brought it to TV, but... Just to give a synopsis, because I don't know if everyone is completely aware of what this is. This is a horror fantasy comic book series and Netflix show that follows the Locke family, specifically the children Tyler, Kinsey, and Bodie, whose father is murdered, so their mother has to move them to the family, the father's family home, which is called Key House, and the kids start discovering magical keys in the house that can be used in various ways. However, a demonic entity also wants the keys, so they're Wait, going... the Locke family moved to the Key, key house? house? I know, and that is a little like... <laughs> It is a little, but I, it's, again. It's, it's, it, it sets the tone. It lets yeah. you know you are into a fantastical story. Yeah, you are going to be watching. And, of course. We are in the realm of myth and allegory. And this all comes from the mind of Joe Hill. Born Joseph in- Robinette. Biden. <laughs> Born in 1972 to his author parents, Tabitha King and Stephen Wait, King. what? Oh, my God, God. Now, anybody. I, in a perfect world, I wish we'd have gone the whole episode. I'm like, oh, yeah, and his dad was Stephen King. <laughs> Tune in next it week, It really fuckers. is the very first thing you learn, I feel like. So anybody who's familiar with this probably already knows this. Joe Hill is Stephen King's son. Of course, the influence is there. You already mentioned Stephen King just talking about how similar his story this story is in a Stephen King universe. Oh, to a hey, Stephen is this King small story. town uh, haunted by the sins of the past and as only seen the through ki- the eyes of kids? Yeah, exactly. Weird. Yeah. Uh, well, at least it's not New England. Wait, it is in New England? <laughs> yes, he was uh, He was born in Herman, Maine and grew up in Bangor, Maine, and his name is actually Joseph Hillstrom King, and you must be wondering, why would Stephen King's son, author of all of this great stuff, why would he, of all people, change his name? And it's actually for a bit of a noble pursuit. He wanted to get big on his own merits. I have more on that. We're going to get there. Okay. So we'll 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 uh, talk a little bit more about his upbringing. This process is actually extremely interesting. Yes, it's very interesting. And I do still. It is the cool thing about him. And I, but I do love he's a little honest about it. Again, we'll get to it. At age nine, he got a role in the film Creep Show in 1982, directed by George A. Romero, which co-starred and was written by his dad. And the part was Billy in the prologue and epilogue. So he did a little bit. Of, he's he's obviously adjacent to horror, to fantasy, to all these things. 
Uh, this is what he had to say about his childhood. It was a really happy family, and it sounds very 19th century, but when we were finished with dinner, we would go into the living room and pass a book around and le- read aloud. That's how I read the Chronicles of Narnia. That's how I first read H.P. Lovecraft. There's a great Jay Leno joke where Jay Leno says, you know, Stephen King says to the kids, let's all have a bedtime story, and the kids all go, no. <laughs> Actually, my dad told hysterical bedtime stories. I remember he wrote one called The Fart Cookies. <laughs> This was about three children, Naomi, Owen, and Joe, whose parents were sick, and they went to to a witch for help. And she gave us cookies, and you ate them, and you began to fart out of control. So he told the best bedtime stories and the history and the history of bedtime stories, which I can totally believe. I get a bit jealous reading about his life with his father and everything and this whole family because it's a literary family. Um, yeah, was, I, I mean, also having Stephen King as your dad in the 80s might not have been the best thing in the world with the old sniff, sniff, woo, woo, yeah, world traveling. This, this but. is assuming it, moving past a little bit of that. When did he get out of his cocaine addiction? I didn't really look into that. I mean, it never goes away, Holden. It's a lifetime journey <laughs> yes. of healing. But when but. did he become sober, I guess, is more my question. Well, I wouldn't know. Well, I'm sure eventually. I, it's kind of bizarre that we are doing an episode on Stephen King's son before Stephen King, but I'm sure we'll get there with it's, him. Uh, it's for scheduling reasons, it's <laughs> fine. So by the age of 12, he knew he wished to pursue a writing career. Hill said, I never kept a journal of anything like that as a kid, but I would write stories every day. I used to come home from school to find my dad working in his office and my mom working in hers. So I just thought that was what you were meant to do. I thought you were meant to sit by yourself in a room and make up a bunch of stuff. And then one day someone would pay you for it. And weirdly... That's what happened. <laughs> he actually filled out the, uh, it was a official Marvel tryout book that he says he submitted at age 12, mm. where uh, you got the first uh, half of a Spider-Man story, mm-hmm. and you were supposed to fill in the other half. He claims he got a form rejection letter by superstar editor Jim Shooter. Nice. And a handwritten note that uh, he could not make legible, but he swears <laughs> that it was something along the lines of, you almost got it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, Which is ironic because uh, his first comic book gig eventually would be an 11-page story where uh, Mm -hmm. Spider-Man story. Absolutely. He definitely gets there. And he is, after we're describing this, I mean, if he's sending out trying to get a job at Marvel at age 12, he's a big old nerd. Oh, such a nerd. And he looks like Stephen King's son. It's kind of amazing. Well, it was like he almost had plausible deniability with that slick, just straight black hair. Um, But then when he grew out the beard, it, it almost like... Hey, give me a give me a Stephen King '80s beard. It just like yes. materialized on his face. Hundred percent, along with the cocaine. It just popped up. No, 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 no. Um. So yeah, he's playing D and D with his friends. He's watching horror movies with siblings growing up, and is very influenced in a storytelling sense by those sorts of things. As a summer project, he said, when I was about 16, I would write a book and give my father five pages every day. We'd sit there when I got home and he'd edit it. By the way, this is the part where I'm talking about how jealous I am because just to have Stephen King as your dad and therefore your Insta mentor is kind of incredible to learn all of the tricks of the trade from him. So yeah, we'd sit there when I got home and he'd edit it. Then we'd talk about those changes together. I learned from him about the power of rewriting, which I haven't forgotten. And again, just so jealous because I'm really, I think I'm pretty terrible at rewriting and it just would have been amazing to have him. And and he even talks about, I have some other quotes we'll get to, but just being able to talk to him all the time, the whole family exchanging work together. It was like a writer's workshop at all times in that house for what it sounds like because his own mother was also a writer and his siblings as well. But do you wonder if he was able to connect with his father on anything besides the thing he was monomaniacally focused on? <laughs> like, is he ever like, hey, Pa, how about we throw the old pigskin? I or mean, like- the only anecdotes in this at all about his relationship with his father all have to do with writing, so I'm gonna say probably not. In 1997, he abbreviates his name uh, in order to succeed solely on his own merits. And again, okay. that's the big thing you know about Joe Hill, when you start reading Lock and Key, someone someone at some point will go, dude, did you know that that's actually Stephen King's son and that he actually changed his name so that he could make it on his own terms? Isn't that so fucking cool? And it is, but it is interesting, the evolution of all of that. So he claims he had this awakening in college. And uh, although there is, uh, I believe, screenplays that his a real name is on before that, because his brother, uh, Owen King, also wanted to be a writer and has released screenplays and 
books and short stories of his own. And so he has like a co-writing credit. You can find precious Joseph King credits somewhere. Mm-hmm. But in college, he had this horrifying anxiety dream, which is basically that he's going to start writing and some publisher is going to be like, oh, yeah, sure. The fucking Stephen King Jr. We'll, we'll love to publish that. Right. And it'll be mediocre and no one will tell him. Yeah. And so his first novel. Which is a really good instinct. That's a great fear to have. And just his future will be ruined because some publisher was willing to lie to him to make a quick buck. Right. This causes him a complete identity crisis, and he just decides, I'm, I'm just going to go by my middle name. It's going to be Joe Hill, and uh, I'm not even going to – It's the two. he says in an interview he's going to – he had two rules. He's not going to use his – he's not going to use his last name, and he's not going to write horror. Yes, that's the big – and the other one is the big one, the not writing horror – situation and and he struggles with that for years i was he uh, claims that he wanted to write quote unquote new yorker fiction yes having no subscription to the new yorker yes but you know these are topics like uh uh cold uh divorces and you know a therapist with a secret and like trouble in connecticut right. and like all these kind of very grown-up uh quote unquote arty farty genres that he just didn't really have the heart in him um two of these early works these early short stories that uh, he claims to still love. One is called Better Than Home, which is about a baseball manager, kind of loosely based on the Boston Red Sox, who has to deal with a son with emotional problems. And the idea of this very distant, yet very focused, and like still very caring father and the son who needs him, he didn't really need to stretch that far, <laughs> given his own uh, upbringing. Right. And another one was called um, Bobby Conroy Comes Back from the Dead. And this was a romantic comedy set in 1978 in Pittsburgh on the set of Dawn of the Dead, <laughs> which he based on his own childhood because yeah. not only was he in Creepshow, but this was before a bunch of child labor laws were kicked into place. So he literally spent an entire week just hanging out in Tom Savini's effects trailer. Wow. He was like, it was just, he was, it was just a quiet place that he could be. And so he was had a firsthand look of all the dark creature effects and all the gore. He claims that he would spend like he would while away the hours in between shots, uh, just looking through photos of autopsies that Savini had lying around. Savini, uh, famous gore effects guy. Uh, we talked course, about him in our talk- Friday. The, uh, I feel like more than once. Yeah. yeah, we've talked about him. But he finally does give himself permission to play uh, in the same spaces as his father. Hill said, "What I really liked was ghost stories, and at a certain point, I realized, hey." No one knows who you are. And if you want to write ghost stories, you have permission now. You're not Stephen King's son anymore. You're just Joe Hill. Uh, and and he was just so influenced by his father's work. And it was great that he changed his name because even though his other siblings also are writers, they don't write in the same spaces as his own father does. So, again, changing his name also, in this sense, gave him that permission to say, I can I can still make it in this way, talking, writing about these things. And it won't be, I don't know, eye rolly for people or something like that if I just do it under this other name. And the game change happened with the short story Pop Art, which is about the friendship between two outcast boys, one of which is made of inflatable plastic. He was, before then, though, he was working in, he was trying to write screenplays with his brother, like you said, uh, and that's when he went under his own name. I sort of put aside my pride and started writing screenplays as Joseph King, and my brother and I wrote screenplays together, and so I have this sordid former career where I wrote and everyone knew everyone knew who my dad was, and Owen and I wrote stuff, and we got rejections too. It didn't really matter. We got screenplays turned down all the time, and he lived off of a check they got for a script for like five years, as he put it, <laughs> called Fade Away, which subsequently went into development hell and turned him off from Hollywood for quite some time. Also, though, he does admit and I really appreciate that he says this. He's that he all through his twenties, even though he was under this other name and it was this big valiant move and everything, he does admit that he, his wife, and his young sons were all supported by his parents' wealth during that whole time. So it's not like he didn't benefit from his family. He said he even said the part that makes me sound really good and the part that makes me sound less great is both happening. You know, I mean, is is both a reality. So he did have a little bit of a of an edge in on on that. I mean, anybody like me knows, and I have parents that aren't poor or anything like that, but I still had to hold down a full-time job. I couldn't even, I couldn't imagine having kids during that time in my 20s. I mean, I was just, you know, it was exhausting. And then you had to go try to make it (laughs) in the hours after you got off of your full-time job when you're already exhausted from that. You have to go 
do a second job, essentially. God damn it, Darlene. I can't afford baby formula. <laughs> I gotta have a two-drink minimum at the open mic. I, what, you gonna not order two PBRs to get five minutes of stage time? Darlene, you're killing me. <laughs> His first publication is a collection of short stories called 20th Century Ghosts, which put him on the map. This uh, I actually have it. I picked it up. I started reading it. I really enjoy it. I have it right here, actually, next to me, because I was reading it before you came here. And it very Stephen Kingy in the sense that I opened it up. I was like, let's see what this is all about. And now I'm just like, can't wait to get this done to finish the first story, which I'm going to do immediately after finishing, because I'm like, I got to know what happens to this this crazy author track. Is a, the first story is this called New Best New Horror, I believe is what uh. it's called. And it's about an author who was sent this short story from this source that said, like, you got to read this. It's like the most disgusting thing I've ever read, but it's this amazing prose. And he reads it, and it is disgusting, and now he's trying to track down the author who wrote it. What kind of dark madman could have conceived it? Yes, and it's very odd. Like, the more he's finding out, the more creepy it sounds. And I'm just like, I got to know what happens. So During anyways, his yeah. years in the wilderness, he claims to have written four full-length novels that were never picked up anywhere, uh-huh. including titles such as... Uh, the Fear Tree, which he claimed was a George R. R. Martin-length fantasy novel that wow. he could not get published even in Canada. Wow. Uh, although it does have some like seeds of things that will end up coming up in his later works. You know, when speaking on that failure, he says that was the pen name doing its work. This was, it was the scenario I feared was yeah. having this mediocre novel pumped out before it was ready. Uh, another book, uh, when he went through his Cormac McCarthy phase, huh. was called The Briars, and it was about two teenage boys who end up going on a killing spree in mm. Vermont uh, with uh, named Sam and Al, who ended up becoming the, you know, basically the scene from the first issue of Lock and Key is one of the killings from this unpublished novel. Oh, okay. Interesting. It's literally, yeah, like Sam Lesser. The character is called Sam Lesser, an emotionally troubled, uh, you know, kid who turns to murder and his real just like monster gross thug friend and kind of how they re- related to each other. Uh, he claims the novel would never sell because uh, the first murder didn't happen until page 150. <laughs> and now he knows better. <laughs> and if you read Lock and Key, that's interesting. Who boy. Yeah. Who boy. Yep, Panel yep. one. We got murder. Listening to your favorite podcast. That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University. That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Oh, real quick, too, going back to 20th Century Ghost, that short story I mentioned before that was his big breakthrough short story, Pop Art, mm-hmm. is in 20th Century Ghost. So if you're curious about it, I'm excited. I'm really happy that I picked this up because I, I got it to, of course, in, in preparation for this episode, even though the book didn't arrive in quite enough time for me to get read enough stories for it to really help. But I'm just really pleased now to have a essentially a another version of a Stephen King short story book just by his son that are all very similar in terms of tone and things like that. And I'm just jazzed, like really excited. But apparently Jack, if, if you were to talk to Jackie Zabrowski from page seven, she would say, check out heart shaped box. That's the first novel that he put out that was published his debut horror novel about an aging rock star who digs more, who enjoys morbid memorabilia and purchases a dead man's funeral suit, which is haunted and leads to these very horrific events. This is essentially being attacked by this ghost or whatnot that is attached to this man's suit. And this book does quite well. It peaks on the New York times bestseller list at number eight and received the 2007 Bram Stoker award for best first novel. And this is really, I think, what is is his big first break as a name, as a novelist. When I read Lock and Key, I had no idea he was a novelist. When I was talking to Jackie about it, I, I was trying to 
t- just tell her about the TV show Lock and Key, and she she was like, oh yeah, Joe Hill, Heart Shaped Box, <laughs> Nosferatu, the, and I was like, oh, those are all those books you've been telling me that you've been reading. <laughs> I had no idea that she was she was uh, avidly into his stuff, or that his name was attached to those works. I just thought he was a comic book guy solely, but no, he makes his, his really his way with. Uh, with these novels, and it's around this time that online rumors do start to swirl uh, that he is Stephen King's son, and an article in Variety actually broke the story and put him out. What year was that? Do you have it? I think I, it was I, 07. Okay, so in 2004, he's still um, getting short stories published, he's getting into magazines, and he's doing, like, you know, he's he's getting a little bit of buzz, and um, Marvel Comics, his his old friend, after all these years... A talent scout reaches out and says, hey, we'd love for you to start working with us. And uh, his first story is uh, a a one-off in a series called Spider-Man Unlimited, number eight. It's in 2004. And he claims it's one of the worst things he's ever written. He claims he hates it. He's, you know, this is the thing. He talks about how... You know, this is it. I, you know, I couldn't make it as a novelist, but who? I, I never really, you know, like novelists were just one of my influences. You know, Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman, like these are the guys I want to be like. Like this is great. I'm gonna be a comic book writer. This is fantastic. And he claims he choked it, but the artwork by uh, unfortunately uh, uh, passed away artist uh, Seth Fisher was breathtaking. It is incredible artwork, and he and he he'll swear that like. The fact that Seth Fisher's artwork was so gonzo and like redeemed his script is why he was able to get the opportunity to stay in the comics business. And he also at this time, like you said, could not sell any of the books like it was three or four books before. (laughs) So he at this point is having this revelation of, oh, thank God I'm not a novelist. But I can work in comics, so we'll just go take that path. Little, of course, does he know he is going to end up becoming both a big deal name in comics and in novels. Uh, he does actually uh, pitch what would become – he does pitch Lock and Key yes. uh, to Marvel because they were the nice ones who reached out. They said no. Uh, DC Comics said no. And Dark Horse said no, um, which he says actually was a boon because even though he had the first couple of issues plotted out – the fact that it was able to just kind of simmer on the back burner for a couple of years meant that, like, if he had an idea for a cool new key, it he could add it to the pile. So, um, you know, it's one of those. It's like a, it's yeah. like your first album. Yeah. You know, all of your a lifetime of ideas and creativity can get like focused into this into this. Which work. is why people talk about the sophomore slump in the sense that you have. Dec- a decade <laughs> potentially or more or whatever to leading up to that first work that you put out there. So that's going to be this culmination of everything. The next album that comes out or the next book or whatever it is, a lot of times suffers because you have to put that together in like one year or mm-hmm. whatever it is generally. But yeah, he was, I mentioned Chronicles of Narnia earlier talking about when the family would read together. That was definitely obviously an influence, especially if you look at the anywhere key that you open it, you know, you put the key in the door and think and imagine a place and then open up the door and you'll be able to walk right into it. That's very much very Chronicles and of obviously, Narnia. And uh, obviously in Chronicles of Narnia when uh, Aslan is like, I can turn whatever race I want to yes. be in. I can change my, I'm a Latino now. <laughs> I'm a Latino lion. Obviously it was an influence on the skin the, key. On that the skin it, key. Uh, yeah, so. Which is oddly missing in the Netflix series. <laughs> yeah, well, no, they combine they yeah. the gender key and the uh the skin key to the identity key which fulfills very much the same purpose yes. and doesn't have to have a essay written about yes exactly but also he was inspired by other children's works he'll said in some ways lock and key is kind of like a young adult fantasy novel gone horribly wrong mm. a lot of what i work on feels that way the house with the clocks in its walls is about an enchanted house with mysterious secrets and i think that was on my mind especially from early on this was a book that was published back in 1973 written by john Belairs and illustrated by edward gory as part of a series of 12 novels about a boy named lewis Barnevelt and is centered around a magic house he goes to live with his mysterious uncle after being orphaned. So it's very, it's kind of a little bit of a one to one there in terms of influence. So Heart Shaped Box is selling really well. He's getting good results. IDW Comics gets in touch with him to ask about adapting some of his horror stories to comic form. And Hill said, I, and Hill, 
And I said, no way. I got something better. I sent the pitch for Lock and Key, and I said, if you let me do it, I can tell the whole story in six issues in one year. (laughs) I was only off by six years and 33 issues. It was the at the time editor in chief of IDW Publishing named Chris Ryle who suggested Gabriel Rodriguez to Joe Hill to illustrate the series. I don't think you have a successful book without Gabriel Rodriguez. His illustrations are out of this motherfucking world. It's a double-edged sword that it took me forever to kind of process because it's not standard superhero artwork. Yeah. Um, And it's not manga-influenced. It's kind of its own deal. Also, according to, to legend, Chris Ryle was so in the tank for Gabriel Rodriguez yes. that when it was officially, because it was Joe Hill's call, quote unquote, to like uh, pick the artist, and the other two artists that Ryle gave him were just garbage. To <laughs> so, quote Hill, Chris sent me art from three artists. One was Gabe and two others were artists he never, ever wanted to work with. He didn't <laughs> think they were any good, so he actually picked Gabe for the comic before I did. These other artists did draw really great gory stuff like demons ripping skeletons out of human bodies and stuff, but that's not really what makes horror work. I love this. You know, throwing as much gore at the reader is not what makes something scary. What I liked about Gabe when I look at his art was his characters had these wonderful, lively faces that expressed emotions and Mm -hmm. interior thought. And I thought, that's actually how good horror begins, when you fall in love with the character. Then, when they suffer the worst, you're along on the ride with them. You're invested and you care. I knew when I saw the way Gabe worked with, uh, I knew when I saw the way Gabe worked with characters that we would be able to make something good together. So much, especially of the first volume, is Mm -hmm. in um, how... Rodriguez captures facial expressions. Horror kind of growing upon re- of truly realizing what the character is witnessing. Uh, a friendly smile dropping just ever so subtly yeah. when a character is having a conversation. It is such good expressions. The eye si- you know, the eyeball size is a little weird. They're not, they're full they're pretty cartoony yeah. representations of people. But it just makes I, I don't want to get into the whole Scott McCloud representation triangle, but <laughs> When you give characters a little bit of a cartoony edge, it helps you feel what they're feeling way more. You know, mm-hmm. you can look at a photograph of a man kind of like scouring and be like, oh, I guess he's kind of upset. But if I drew a frowny face, it'd be like, oh, he's sad. The other thing is Rodriguez's background as yep. a architecture. Or a, 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 I'm sure there's a real name for this, but the guy what draws blueprints. Yeah. he <laughs> An architectural artist. Yeah. He went to, he went to school for architecture. He thought that was going to be his main calling. Really, illustration was a side gig. He literally, and I would, oh, I would love to have one of these, but he made actual 3D models of Key House. Brilliant. In order to understand the full geometry of it, to understand it spatially for his illustrations. And they'll say, you know, I I probably have a quote I'll say about it at some point, but they considered Key House to be its own character. And I think that you need that background in architecture to be able to tell that story through the visual of the inside of the this space of these different rooms that so keep, many make this shots, out. so many drawings in here where it's either the it's Bodie peering into the well house or the family approaching the key house. It's the platonic ideal of what effective comic art is, which is simplified, expressive characters inhabiting a well rendered, extremely believable, uh, consistent world. And the effect is you're you're embodying the minds of the characters. You are feeling what they're feeling. You're seeing what they're seeing. And the environment that they're inhabiting is fully realized. So the illusion, the impact is just bam. Yeah. You can see it a lot in if you watch you know, why are why are anime and in manga, you know, the characters are barely human. They're these weird triangle people, but the school, the you know, the 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 backgrounds are all nearly photorealistic. It's that same effect. It is a winning formula for a reason, and Rodriguez nails it. Rodriguez, by the way, to give a little background, was born in Santiago de Chile. Day, day. I sound like such a southern. Santiago de Chile, uh, Chile, and initially studied architecture in college, as we said. And yeah, that's uh, his first. Oh, this is what I meant to get into. His first commission was a set of illustrations for a collectible card game. Uh, Mitos y Leyendas, which translates ooh, ooh, ooh. to Myths, Myths and, and Legends. Oh, man. And after four years of work on that, he was hit up. So what? what's the deal with myth, Myths and Legends? Oh, no, I just am happy that my rudimentary high school Spanish still works. Oh. 
<laughs> I thought you knew the game. I thought Landa. you were... <laughs> uh, Yeah, it's it's not too too tough to figure out what that really bueno. To. He uh, he ends up getting hit up by IDW so, to put his work into comic form from the card game, which led to being a full time comic artist. So that is how they end up getting together. Upon reading Lock and Key, he was reminded of reading The Sandman as a teen and loved Lock and Key's magical story approach. That is Gabriel Rodriguez. Hill was also inspired by Sandman, which created a bond between the two. Hill was inspired by how the different dreams could be the starting point to tell stories and how the keys could serve the same purpose. And I think that's really true. One thing I will say about the TV show is give it, Try to try to give it more more of a chance than just an episode or two. Because I think the show and the comic and everything really operates at its fullest potential when you have enough keys introduced because they are so fundamental to so many fun plot devices and things that the more keys you have in there. And if you go to the Wikipedia, it was so funny because I had not read the comic in a while. So I was brushing up on things. If you go to the comics Wikipedia and see the full list of keys, there are a shitload of keys to it, and they all do different crazy things that I love. When you I don't pick up the comics, or at least the graphic novels, there's usually some back matter where they do some fun ye old explanations of yeah. what each key does with yes. a funny kind of engra- lithography engraving style drawing done by Rodriguez. Oh, here, going back to you talking about the cartoonishness, Rodriguez said, I made the conscious choice of drawing the comic in a more childlike way because I knew that throughout the story, these kids would be growing up. So my idea would be to get more and more realistic in the drawing approach as the comic progresses. And he even talks about how it was a bit of a gamble because originally the idea was they would tell the story in six issues or something like that. And he knew... He needed more time to age the illustration approach. He would have to do it over like many, many issues, but it ended up really working out for him. And you can definitely see that evolution as the comics go on. I man, the just look up the picture of all of the the three kids looking inside of Bodie's head. <laughs> that big splash page. It's just so amazing looking. It really is so stunning. It, the, I loved how. Even though it's a horror world and there's plenty of darkness and things like that, there's also a lot of vibrant energy happening in these illustrations. There's just so much wonder. It really, he did such a good job of melding the horrific with the fantastic in ways that really suck you in. So, yeah, he's making the 3D models. He said even being just a house, it has to be a house that has to be able to tell a story about itself and express mood. And Hill said, I've always felt that I've learned as much about the characters from the way Gabe draws them than he ever learned about them from anything I ever wrote. A lot of his illustrations, apparently Kinsey was a tough one for Hill. And when Gabe gave her a face, gave her a look and everything, he Hill actually that informed his writing and he was able to get more into it and they really grew together as a team in comics I mean Hill even talks about how uh, a comic book is about 24 pages and I would write scripts that were three times that 60 to 65 pages the first book of lock and key is about 100 pages long but probably had 300 pages of script for it I wouldn't just be describing what's happening in a panel I'd be describing the weather and the character's emotional state and what they ate for breakfast because I didn't know what would be important to Gabe. Over time, as we worked, my scripts began to shrink more and more because a lot of times I could just say a couple of things and Gabe would know exactly what I was hoping for. Also, though, Hill realized that Gabe was really a strong animator and so he could actually fit the action of multiple panels into one panel. And that was this big challenge for uh, Gabriel Rodriguez to have to figure out how to make this happen artistically. And they sort of evolved into this healthy competition. They're just trying to out-impress each other with their work, and I feel that. And you feel the comic book, as, that first trade is really strong, but you just feel the whole thing become, I think it does get stronger and stronger as mm-hmm. it goes. And what I do love is that it is one encompassed story. It is six trades long, beginning, middle, and end, and you're you're that's and you're out. And I do appreciate that. There are so many big mysteries and and instead of just a big kind of dump at the end, the payoffs kind of come at a regular interval that really it is very satisfying to read. Uh you mentioned kind of how the first trade has a little bit of trouble kind of finding its baby steps and that's because Joe Hill was so obsessed with making sure he does this quote unquote right yeah. that he started 
meticulously counting panels and word counts <laughs> in other popular comics at the time. He specifically says, this was the 2000s, that Brian K. Vaughn was a huge influence on the initial part where he wanted to make sure that no page in his comic had more panels than a Brian K. Vaughn comic. Uh, stuff like Why the Last Man and Ex Machina, stuff like that, yeah. which were huge titles. Yeah, at the time. those were huge at the time, and and, of co- and, uh, and eventually leading to Saga. But that was later. Anyway, we should do a Brian K. Vaughn episode. Yes, we should. Um, uh, another thing is Rodriguez and Hill were partners. They talked about how at one of the many failed attempts to get the show off the ground, they ended up at a hotel bar in Pittsburgh uh-huh. and over drinks hashing out what would become the final 18 issues of the comic series. This is Hill. The best part of it wasn't actually watching the, them film the show. It was when we would go to the hotel afterwards. He's talking about him and Gabriel Rodriguez. And we'd sit at the bar together, and we would talk about the comic, which we were still creating at the time. And together, over two or three nights, we mapped out the last 10 to 14 issues of the comic. One night, we were sitting there, and Gabe cracked a joke about the ending, essentially. And he was just kidding, but my head almost exploded. And I just thought, oh, my god that's so great we're doing that which is really amazing they really do i love that idea that they were both coming into the business they hadn't done a ton of work professionally in comics before that and that they they were able to cut their teeth together and yeah it's just such a strong work visually i mean i remember back when i was reading it Back when you know, back in the day, I just was so blown away by how good it looked, how tight the storytelling was. You just, I couldn't wait for the next trade mm-hmm. to come out. This was back when it was coming out, I believe. I was, I was reactively be like, oh shit, the last trade. I remember when the last trade came out. It was like how huge of a deal that was. I couldn't wait to just blow through it. I don't know. I've I've read a comic book series with that type of a tenacity as I since honestly. I wish I had read it at the time because there's so much great moments in each individual issue that's so deliberately done but when you shotgun it shotgun blast it like i did this <laughs> week what you end up is just it's the it's the lock kids versus the secret evil person show it's <laughs> you know these just these two forces just butting heads over and over and over and over and over again and it's very satisfying but i feel like i i kind of missed the 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 forest for the trees a little uh-huh to getting to take your time with it and again i was or, and waiting you know a yeah, month and waiting or two. a month yeah getting that space also shout outs to jay photos who was their colorist for the entire run i talk it again about just great work on this. I mean, I already mentioned how how much I love the colors, and Gabriel Rodriguez would talk about how he would get his work back and feel it was almost reinterpreted. Mm-hmm. It was it was uh, just an, on another level because of the coloring. And Gabriel's work in black and white is incredibly crisp and really well detailed. A lot of good hatching, a lot of strong blacks. I was shocked to see how good it just looked uncolored. But I love strong blacks. Mm, skin key. <laughs> but I, I didn't. I'm glad you looked into the colors because I just had did not get into. Them. Like I said, everybody needs to look up the kids looking into Bodie's head and just sit back and admire that work. And the coloration is incredible on that image, as well as the details and the many wonderful illustrations of uh, Gabriel Rodriguez. Almost called him Robert Rodriguez just then. <laughs> Listening to your favorite podcast. That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University, that's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. Sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece with nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. So Hill sent Rodriguez issues of Alan Moore's Swamp Thing for reference as per what he was looking for. And the Exile Saga particularly influenced Rodriguez, which is great because I'm currently reading those. So I was like, yeah, I love it. 
And the Exile Saga is really fucking good. It's really inventive. Rodriguez said, in a few series, you have changes of style, changes of coloring. There's an issue that's made completely with photocopied collages. Some of that we explored in Lock and Key. We changed the way in which we approached the narrative storytelling of the visuals and styles to give the different books different looks. I love it given a look of a book. <laughs> I will also say, though, they play with form in a similar way. I lo- Again, let, can are you, you, you going to talk about the Calvin and Hobbes? Can they, can they just not keep mentioning shit that I love? <laughs> Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, The Sandman, and of course they give a big nod to Calvin and Hobbes in this amazing way with a full, like one of the, an entire issue is yeah. done in that style, the Watterson Watterson. style. And it's a, it's a fucking head trip. Yeah. It, Cause you know, things get a pretty dark in this. In yes. What, there's a certain moment in that, in that issue where you keep reading and you're like, Oh, they're, this is, they're not going to snap out of this. This isn't a dream sequence. This is happening in the reality of uh-huh. this story. And all of a sudden it completely like, you're like, Oh, they're in real danger. This is, if this was happening in the normal style, this would be a huge climactic moment. And they also did an issue that was all inspired by 50s war comics. Mm-hmm. And had just, I love how much they play with style and paneling. I mean, they really fuck around with layout in so many crazy, awesome ways that you've seen in other stuff before, but definitely very inspired, of course, by Sandman in that sense as well, where they're just flying off the panel and doing all sorts of fun, splashy things. With... Uh, both Hill and Rodriguez speak about how difficult horror is to pull off in comics, and I have to absolutely agree, and how you need a balance of humor and getting the reader to care about the main characters in order to get to where one is worried for their well-being. And that is so true. You definitely want... you, you want. They talk about seeing someone say something funny, making the reader laugh a little bit, and then seeing them in real danger the next moment is just so helpful to get people actually frightened for the characters. And in comic books, especially more so than in prose, it's very difficult to do. And most people just show you a really gory, horrific image, but it doesn't really, that's not doing what Stephen King's doing in his books. You know what I mean? He, the building of tension's not necessarily there. When you think of horror comics, you think exploitation-y, just guts, you know, all over the place, that sort of thing. So much of these characters' arcs is about recovering from those moments of yes. violence and processing it. You know, what comes up, what initially happens as some shock value, crazy splash page, you feel the repercussions. These are real. You believe these are people that yeah. did witness these things and just want to have a normal life. Yeah, and I'm going to get into it later, but it's also a story about grief and a story about growing up, you know, and and processing those things through these fantastical keys and we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a bit i want to first get into this whole talk about the development hell the whole process of adapting this thing to a tv series i had no idea it's if it's a popular comic someone's gonna be like oh great someone's gonna want to make it but (laughs) then when in the actual process of making it it can be quite different especially as technology grows because I, there's so many over the top elements to this that one one would especially back in the earlier 2000s mid 2000s one would be like how the fuck are you going to pull this off on TV mm. well if you're fox you spend 10 million dollars on a pilot yep. and don't make it Dimension Films acquired the film and television rights from IDW Publishing with John Davis producing he did the Pr- Predator franchise and a bunch of other stuff And they got to work on a feature film. That was the first step. Then Dimension lost the adaptation rights to DreamWorks. You even have Steven Spielberg signed on as a producer by 2010. And the film turns into a TV series. And the TV series is greenlit for a pilot by 20th Century Fox, as you mentioned before, which was filmed in 2011. However, later that year, Fox announces that they would not be picking up the series. And they really spent $10 million. They spent $10 million. Oh Apparently, it's a brilliant adaptation. You oh can hunt down. Oh, my God. New guys in the corner puking his guts out. Wee-oh, wee-oh, wee-oh. <laughs> All because you wanted to save a little on brake pads. <laughs> Get out. Do, do you validate? Wow. <laughs> yeah, I know. I just That's what I used to quote. Well, maybe a Tommy Boy episode in our future. Maybe. <laughs> Apparently, you can hunt down the original adapted screenplay, and it's apparently very good. I just wasn't able to get a hold of it. Interesting. I did read it. I That was a lie. Uh, <laughs> another classic Holden fib. <laughs> 
Ooh, yeah. I love all the all the secret groups getting together. What does he lie about? <laughs> Who does he? Um, the, every other thing I say is a lie at this point, people. So one good thing to come out of the pilot, though, was that was the shoot where they figured out the ending. Mm-hmm. So you at least have that. So IDW gets back to work on a television series adaptation in 2016, for which Hulu gives a pilot order on for 2017, so they probably gave the pilot the order and then they fucking smoked <laughs> weed, dude. With Hill involved in the production, along with Carlton Cuse, who is known for Lost, the TV series Lost, and Hulu ends up again passing on the series. But now you've got Carlton Cuse involved. Now it's 2018, and Netflix signs on for a series order with Hill and Q's co-writing the pilot while working alongside Meredith Avril and Aaron Eli Colette. They're known for uh, they're they're the showrunners, and they're known for Heroes, among other things. They're a bit of a team. So Hill did appreciate how, with a script as opposed to panel, you can flesh out the dialogue more, and they were able to really spend their time. And I will say. Sometimes I, I feel like things are maybe a little too spread out in the TV show. It takes a little time to get going. It's a Netflix show. By its very nature, yes. it's going to be. It's going to sp- be a little spread out. It's ten episodes. They're about forty-five minutes to an hour each. And yeah, it does. It. I, I like that certain things are more fleshed out, and but other things, I'm like, come on, let's just get to the, you know, crazy shit. Let's get these keys out there. Uh, so J- Jackson Robert Scott, actually, who plays Bodie, was the only actor to stay on from the Hulu pilot. He played uh, Georgie, by the way, in the new It movies. I will oh. say, so he is the one I want to say, and I feel bad because he's so young, and I don't want to be it's, critical of a can. very young person. But I will say, I think we are watching, he's the one actor who I, I, I'm i not loving watching the show. He's very much a child actor. He is just the quintessential child actor. Because, well, Bodie in the comic is at an age that there, an act, a child actor just wouldn't be able to yeah, do. Yeah, it's really, you'd have to get, it would have to be this mind-blowing thing, and then I would have spent half the episode talking about how amazing this <laughs> child actor is. The Miracle Child is in the best show ever! He's not, he's not like ruining the show for me, but he's just like, he's a little too cute, he's a little too, like, robotic. Right. You know, in this way, it stands out a little bit in comparison to the other actors who I do think are pretty solid. And hopefully he'll age with it and get better. As I hope the show keeps going. Again, it has not been officially greenlit for a second season, but they are currently working on a new show. Uh, it's, Brit- just a, it's just the fact that when you're reading the comic, you see these teen, t- young teen kid characters, and you can just you can just be like, okay, they're kids. Yeah. But... You see the, you know, you see Kinsey's a little bit older than, like, you think she should be. Yeah. And Tyler's just a little too pretty than what you think yeah. he should be. And that's just going to be how it, it is what it is. British actress Amelia Jones plays Kinsey. And Canadian actor Connor Jessup plays Tyler Locke. And both, though young, have done quite a bit of acting work through their childhood. And you have Darby Stanchfield, known from Scandal, playing the mother She's solid. She's always like smiling weirdly. And <laughs> I'm kind of like, it's kind of, uh, but she, I think she does a pretty solid job on there. There's, of course, a bunch of other actors that I can't even get into. It's a pretty big cast. I do like how in this, are, are we spoily? Are we, like, how deep do we? Uh, Spoilers for season one, I guess we'll just say it right now. I, They're already I, 50 minutes in. If they haven't been convinced to stop and actually go watch the show, spoiler free, then I guess now would be a good time to do that. I like how they introduce the concept of the mom's uh, alcoholism as part of what lets her see some of the magic and Uh that kind of tension between not wanting to get too far into the bottle, but also needing to unravel the mystery. Because it has that trope of only the kids can experience this magic and the parent, the the adults lose that. A lot, again, the keys are symbolic of going through childhood as well as grieving. They're they're essentially shortcuts is what they call them for children or for grief-stricken people to get through life. And as you get older, the magic goes away. Hill and Rodriguez appear in the season finale, by the way, as paramedics, which is fun. They appear in the comic also. It's literally the same cameo. You see a very Gabriel Rodriguez and a very Joe Hill-looking paramedic towards the, uh, towards, I guess... I forget where in the his comics, but you can see the panel, and it's them in the same role. That's 
actually amazing. <laughs> I love that. So filming was done in Toronto, Ontario, as well as Nova Scotia, with the lock house being a constructed set, which is interesting. I figured that was a real house. And there are fundamental changes in the adaptation. I love studying adaptation. It's always fascinating to me. One of my favorite things to do with Lexi is we'll read a book series. And while we're reading this book series, we'll watch whatever medium right after. Like we did that with the Harry Potter series. We're we're doing it right now with Golden Compass a little bit with um, His Dark Materials. We'll read the book and then we'll like watch the TV show. Or, or movie or whatever it is and and a lot and have a lot of fun discussing why certain choices were made I think the choices they made here make a lot of sense to me a lot of it is uh, mechanical device th- mechanic device things with the keys biggest example uh, right off the top is instead of opening someone's head with the key and looking into the head a door appears I, I love the, it's so creepy looking so you put the key into the back of the neck mm-hmm. turn it the whole body just goes limp, and then a different version of you you appears next to a door, and this door will be open, and you can walk into the person's mind and experience it. And that is the head key in the TV show, whereas, again, in the comic, they just open up the head and peer into it. But I see how that would be very difficult to do. And it's a little bit more cinematic the way they do it with the door. Another thing that I love that they do is, uh, which is usually happens in adaptation, they kind of consolidate certain characters or kind of repurpose them into new characters. And they do a lot of twists that, you know, if for fans of the comic that are just going to be like, oh, I know where this is going. Uh-huh. It's very kind of cool when all of a sudden the thing that you're thinking is going to happen doesn't happen and now you're leaning forward being like wait what's happening yeah it's that game of thronesy thing a little bit even though they botched it of course (laughs) at the end but it would be so fun when you see something different you're like oh my god and all of a sudden the world feels dangerous Mm -hmm. in the show where it wasn't before you were like i know i'm a soothsayer i can see (laughs) the future of all these things so yeah in the first season two what do you have you've got the the identity key the head key the anywhere key the omega key the, uh, what is it called? The lighter, the matchbook key? The matchstick key. The matchstick key. There's just so many more. A good example of one is there's a key that makes you like a giant, which mm-hmm. is a really exciting, when that gets introduced, it's really exciting. There's so many more to come that are so cool and fun to play with. Uh, the shadow crown mm-hmm. situation, you've got that. I feel like I'm probably leaving oh oh the man that was such a crazy up the the music box key oh yeah it's such comes a crazy device clutch. they did a really good job of that and how shitty it is to be a teen and and do things that you would clearly later regret i think when kenzie takes advantage of the key that she can tell people what to do essentially and they have to they feel compelled it's kind of like that uh beetlejuice scene where uh you know Dale it's like that scene with the family like they they're like wide-eyed looking at themselves moving around in this way that they can't control which is which is a lot of fun and then of course with the with the villain with the main antagonist who knows 100% what all the keys do and p- combines them in all sorts of crazy ways to just it's ter- it's it's the way they kind of play between the freak of the week nature, like, oh, yeah. this keys does this fun thing, and they explore that idea. Yeah. And then when it's time to move the plot along, all of a sudden, those keys didn't go away. They're all in the yeah, mix. Yeah, they're they- all in the mix, and I love that. And that is definitely, it passed what I call the Lexi test, where I'm I'm already going to be excited about it because I love the comic book series, mm-hmm. so I'm going to be into it. But Lexi, who has does not give a shit about any of that, or at least hasn't read it or anything, she is super having fun with it as well and totally getting it with the premise and everything. To the point where once you realize that this we're going to keep getting more keys, every time a new one would get introduced, it was like, ooh, what will that key do? <laughs> the uh, fixing broken stuff one as well. Yeah, the yeah. The mending. The mending key. Yeah, there's just so – it's so much fun to play with all that stuff, and it's so inventive. Hill said, each key has a magical power behind it, but they all explore something teenagers or people going through grief really experience. Using the head key, Kinsey removes her fear from her head which happens both in the comic and the TV show. When we did that in the story, I thought to myself, a lot of teens go through a fearless streak where they do things that in retrospect seem incredibly reckless and dangerous. Why would they do that? Because they feel they're immortal. They can't be broken and they want to show the people they love that they're ready to jump with both feet into life. 
I think guys, young men especially, want to be seen as unbreakable, unreachable, strong. So we use the Hercules key as a way to show Tyler shedding his humanity to become this masculine Loki of force. The Crown of Shadows is about the childhood fear of darkness under your bed, that it will become uh, animate and come for you. However, the keys... Uh, this is just not Hill talking anymore. However, the keys are just a shortcut. And according to Rodriguez, quote, the idea that by growing up, you lose touch with magic. It's because as an adult, you shouldn't be able to rely on magic shortcuts through the problems in your life. You need to face them and sometimes acknowledge you can't solve them. But Hill also says the interpretation is very much so that trope of imagination gives way to resignation in adulthood as well when it comes to the ma- the use of magic in this and how adults cannot of course it's like the age old thing you know? I do like the canonical explanation is that there's an enchantment that they're like the person who put in the the, the rifle the rifle rule is that like oh no if grown ups had this power they'd like immediately conquer the world but like kids will just like raid an ice cream store <laughs> like, yeah it's, it's fine kids let the kids have their fun yeah completely no, it's funny. It's it's uh, it's 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 always fun to see that to see there's some what is our obsession as people with that very Stephen King, very Steven Spielberg trope of these kids are uh, the Goonies thing. These kids are in over their head and they're the only ones who can take care of it. And the adults just will not be of any use in this situation. I just Spielbergism. Yeah, exactly, right? Spielberg-esque But it's so true. I mean, obviously with the success of Stranger Things and everything, we just are cannot get past this idea that these kids have to do. I guess it leads to a lot of great plot devices because the monster's a bit scarier when it's kids instead mm-hmm. of adults. The the threat is just larger in that sense. But there's also something about the power of uh, when you were a child and the the way the world was when you were a child and how anything was possible back then and now it's no longer like that and i think we as adults love to go back to that time mm-hmm. when the 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 possibilities were limitless and magic really did fucking exist you know and i we were even able to in our heads change the, our surroundings and fight invisible vampires and do ridiculous things like that and it was real to us I om- it's it feels kind of weird doing this topic because I wish this was a bigger deal. I wish we could talk about this with the same fervor and intensity and the same kind of iconography that we were talking about a famous superhero or a, a classic uh, sci-fi movie. But the fact is, is that this is just an incredibly solid comic by an incredibly noteworthy set of creators that did well in the very small world of nerds who care about graphic novels. Yeah. And then it got to be not like a a hit movie, not, you know, destination television, but just another Netflix show that got dumped on us 10 episodes at once. (laughs) Yeah. Whereas I feel like if they had kept it small like Stranger Things and made it a a big event or if they had done the Disney Plus thing like with Mandalorian and really just let each episode drop and have time to breathe. Yeah. We could be like locking into lock and key. Ah. uh, Oh, man. (laughs) It just feels... It feels like if you if you're on the fence and you've somehow been listening this entire time, pick up the comic. Pick up the comic. Pick up the comic. The, the show is pretty solid. Unless like I said, you it, it don't want to watch parents get murdered in front of their own kids. Yeah, <laughs> like if that's just not in your wheelhouse at it, the moment. The show did pass the Lexi test, so I am confident that it's a pretty solid, fun time. But I do, I am hopeful for a season two, as. The, the, I think that they have some room, some ground to make up a little bit that, to get it to where it really needs to be. Carlton Cuse, the showrunner, said, although Netflix has not picked up season two and their policy is not to do that until they have 30 days of data on the show, they have paid for a writer's room. And Cuse also said, we're in the middle of writing season two, so we're optimistic and hopeful that we're going to get a chance to make season two. We very much know what it is because Meredith and I are in the middle of overseeing the writer's room, and we're working on that right now. So I hope that they do that. I, I think there's more fun stories to tell. There's more fun to have in this space. And also, in terms of the comic book series, in the past, Hill has commented that if the show was ever a go, the two, him and Rodriguez, Gabriel Rodriguez, would do a series called World War Key, which would be both a prequel and a sequel, with the first issue taking place during the Revolutionary War and talking about like the early stages of the Locke family. And the second issue would take place years after the last issue of the main series ended. And as the characters are older and pick up back where they left off there. I hope they do it. It, Also, they have a three-volume 
I believe it's called the master volume or something like that playing off of the whole key thing obviously I ordered the first one I'm so sad that I was supposed to get it a couple days ago and then my order got delayed and I was really bummed out because I'm super excited to reread this and it's it's three volumes for the whole series if you don't want to pick up each individual trade great artwork the covers are so good too for all of the issues and everything it's just really really a wonderful wonderful outstanding work and I think that's gonna do it for us today ladies and gentlemen that is our episode on lock and key and Joe Hill uh, thank you so much for listening. Check us out on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. We do weekly episodes. It's just $5 a month. We're doing all sorts of fun shit on there, so check it out. If you're still hankering for more uh, Lego content, we have an interview with uh, a, a Lego Island expert. Everything you've ever wanted to know about Lego Island <laughs> will be revealed. Uh, release us, Lego. Release us. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm loving all this Lego action and all the Lego love on Facebook and whatnot. People are really excited about it, which is great. I still have not ordered my Lego set. Are you talking about the official Wizard and the Bruiser Facebook group Ooh. where you can discuss and enjoy nerd culture with like-minded fans? I guess. Or like whatever. It's actually a really fun place to hang out. For, it's almost, for the most part... It is just a lot of nerd love going on there. And lately it's been so amazing, guys, because they're all posting. One day was all, or a couple days was all PlayStation <laughs> video game love. It was just only the original PlayStation games that people love, and they were just posting. Everyone was posting their favorites. The PC, I think, recently got it, the love for that. <laughs> Sega Genesis had its own day, and everyone's just like, these are the games I loved on Sega Genesis. So that's such a great place to hang if you want to check it out. Also, if you want to check me out, twitch.tv forward slash Ho. And I do streams on Monday night, Tuesday night, and Friday night with Jackie from Page 7, uh, just on Friday. Jake? Follow me on Twitter at BestJakeYoung to keep up with all of my various thoughts, feelings, and maybe I'm very obsessed with K-pop right now because my <laughs> favorite band is better to release their next album on my birthday. OMG! Stan NCT! <laughs> Alright, everybody, and always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. The legends are true. Overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.